0: my motorcycle and paid for the mirrors and the equipment that he needs to do the mixing and that's how hip-hop started in new zealand
1: wait so you started the alternative education and you started hip-hop in new zealand really
0: <laughs> and so he put together um pulled some friends together and then i started dancing and i got more and more dragged into it and i was hooked i saw something that i've never seen before so we rocked up in 2005 Billy and eight of his crew members. What I saw, it was attracting men and boys and girls. And it's vibrant. It's, it, it, it caught me, caught my attention. And I thought, I want to support that. That's why I support my son. And Billy and Enola established Street Dance New Zealand that take the hip-hop to a next level to the world, and then the rest is history. We influence a lot of people from way back then to where they are now including Paris Goebel, and she has some private lessons with Billy. and So they, yeah, we built. So that's one of the things that we did. It started at the back of our house. <laughs> of course <So>. it did.
1: <laughs> Kia ora koutou, and welcome to Revolving Door Syndrome. I'm Dr Nina Su, your friendly neighbourhood paediatric and emergency doctor. My day job is helping sick kids get better. But lately, I felt like I'm pushing a revolving door round and round in circles. I patch these kids up, send them back to the environment that made them sick in the first place, and they come right back through those hospital doors again. Together with my partner Connor, we've created this podcast to deep dive into the reasons for our broken systems, and perhaps find some real solutions. This podcast was made in association with the School of Medicine, University of Auckland, and sponsored by Medworld. Top of mind for New Zealanders, at least according to the media, is youth crime and ram raids. But when I speak to most people there's a deeper understanding that crime is a symptom of broader societal dissonance. The risk factors for a life of crime and incarceration are well studied and well known, yet it feels like we haven't figured out how to prevent it yet. Or at least we haven't accepted that we need to keep doing the interventions that work and stop doing the interventions that don't. On this episode, I'm joined by Sully Paya, member of the New Zealand Order of Merit for a services to youth work. He's an iconic fixture in Aotearoa who has not only seen it all, but lived it. Thank you so much for coming on this podcast, Sully. So you're a bit of an icon in Aotearoa in the youth work space. You're a very, very busy man. What is it that drives you to do all the work that you do?
0: Well, first of all, Nina, thank you for having me. Good to be in your podcast this morning, and I love telling my story.
1: Oh, very good. Um, oh, we love, love hearing it. I <laughs> love
0: to. I love the journey that I'm on, and that's why I wear my canoe on my. Uh, that's I'm on the canoe journey. I'm on that journey, and there's no
1: rush to get to the destination, is there?
0: <laughs> yeah. So, telling a story, telling our story, and that's something that is passionate to me. So, what do I do? Why do I do what I do? A lot of people ask me that question. I guess. At one time in my life, I was trying to find myself. I was so lost. Absolutely. My background, I grew up very lost, not in a very good environment. A lot of abuse and suffer from a whole lot of abuse in physically, mentally. sexually. I was a pretty messed up kid. So I didn't have a very good background uh, to start off with in life. And so that messed me up right up until my late teen years, in my early 20s, I think at the point in my life where I was so lost, I just don't want to live anymore. You get to a point where is this it? There's nothing more to life. This it just doesn't seem to satisfy that hole. It's like a hole inside you that don't seem to fill. No amount of alcohol, no amount of money, no amount of anything that will fill that gap. It's just always there. And so I just couldn't find, and I came to a point where, and I think that's where I had. I, a spiritual encounter that changed my life dramatically from that point, right through to this day. So,
1: what happened? What happened with this uh, spiritual encounter?
0: Well, I had. I, I I knew. I grew up in a in a church environment, but I did not understand anything about God and Jesus and the Bible and all that religious stuff. I never understand. <laughs> I never see it, but I knew that there was something there. And it was in the time when I know that I just could not find. It was just in the dead end, that I don't want to live anymore. I had an encounter with what I believe. I had a dream, bad dream, that I am going to go to hell and burn hell for the rest of my life, and that's how it's going to be. I woke up freaking out and thought, this is not good. And not understanding all these things, I thought, what was that all about? But I remember the old song that I used to to sing when I was in Sunday school. It says, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. So I thought... Well, if Jesus really loves me, please do something because I don't want to live anymore. What was life went, like?
1: Because you just moved to New Zealand when you were yeah, around was, 18. Was, is it?
0: I came here with my grandfather because he told me that it's a land of milk and honey, and I was trying to find where that milk and honey is. And <laughs> I just found a line red and whiskey and rum and girls and rock and roll. And that takes, put me in a path to fast forward it to a dark place. I became an alcoholic, drink seven days a week, Pay on Thursday, broke on Friday, borrow on Saturday, steal for the rest of the week to make it to the next payday.
1: And just in early adulthood, hey? So
0: it was just the life that continuously, day in, day out.
1: How did that happen?
0: Well, the environment that I live in, that was what they live. Lots of alcohol. And so I just dragged into that midst and and that's all they knew. That's all I knew. There was nothing else. So until I have that encounter... That I decided I want to change. I want to find something. I want to find that peace. And it was through understanding about God and God's love for me, and that changes my life. And from that day onwards, it was a 180-degree 100, yeah, <laughs> turnaround that I decided to, yeah, and it changed. I couldn't stop drinking. I couldn't stop all the things that I do. I couldn't, but it was a supernatural power and love of God that changed me, took away all that and gave me something. And that was the beginning of my journey and trying to find myself. And to a point where I knew that this is my calling in life is to work with youth in OTAR. And, and so 1979 was the year that I decided that's what I'm going to do. So I just walked down on the street and met up with a group of kids they were not going to school. They were wagging school, playing space invader games back in back in that era, in the 70s, early 80s, and so I connect up with them and discuss and talk about it. So I saw myself in them. So that draws me, in. that was the beginning of my love for youth. And so we decided to do something, and so we built from there gradually. Before. No money, nothing but a vision and a dream to connect with youth, and so. We built that small group up to a point where we acquired a building. We acquired a facility where we established it, become a center focus point where youth meets up and become a great point of contact for all of us with contact with youth. And and that was the beginning of my youth working there in 1979. And sadly, fast forwarded to how many years later? Today, I still see the same problem, but it's escalated even more.
1: Yeah. Worse, things have gotten yeah, worse. it's gotten
0: worse. And that's the sad part for me. Has it
1: always gotten worse is it, or has it in there time? There was
0: a point of time that I remember that there were, according to the police, because we connect with the police, they told us that, to our organisation, that the way you guys are going, <laughs> we, we are not going to continue our fundings because there's no problem, there's no more problem, because the police noticed the change in the community. And that was because we have a lot of youth workers on the street. They were out there on the schools, in the alleyways. They will connect after hours. There were youth workers out there connecting with youth. So... There's no room for them to get into the stuff. Right. So you're saying um, because yeah. crime
1: went down, yeah, they crime thought went crime's down, not the a problem. Said, it's so quiet. It's so quiet. Why yeah, is it no what problem? They said. I and mean, then they I'm said, surprised. Oh, I guess we don't need to fund these organizations that's anymore. Right.
0: That's exactly Oh right. my goodness. <laughs> and so so that's how the funding's eventually was taken away because of the fact that there was no more crime. See, that was one hmm. of the biggest issues and the biggest mistake when that did that, that happen. Made. This was happening in, in 16, I think, 2016, 17. The, the other thing also is when changes of government One government comes in and establish all this stuff Good stuff And then another government comes in And uh, they cut the funding because they don't need it anymore So there was no consistency We know exactly what needed to be done in our community Because we live there We know our kids
1: So is that one of the struggles Is that for community groups such as your community group Is that the funding is so inconsistent That you don't exactly. know what funding you're going to get In the next financial year or budget exactly. or whatever
0: you don't know. You're not sure if you're going to be funded for the next year. So you, you're just living on that. Three years you got contract, but after that, you don't know. Because I
1: find that really tricky because, like you say, governments come and go, but the communities are still there, yeah, right? And yeah. then so it's hard when your funding is on a whim, I guess.
0: Exactly. That's exactly the issue. The issue is that there's, there's no consistency and there's enough. No, there's not enough. And also funding the right organization because a lot of money had been wasted into organizations that had just been pushers and ticking boxes and do what, exactly what the government does. For us, for our organization, we, we operate outside of the box. I made it clear when, when I met with government, I said, This is how we do things. You've seen our track record. You fund us and get lost. We will make you look good. I said, We know what we do, we know exactly how to deal with the issues. in and that's exactly what we did.
1: So what's the out-of-the-box way that your
0: organization works? Well, there are a lot of restrictions are things that you can't do this and you can't do that and you can't do that. Um, like what? What you know, can't you do? Well, I'll give you for instance, I started the alternative education in, in New Zealand.
1: You started it? I started
0: it. at the back <laughs> of our where we were our base. There were a group of kids that are wagging school from Hillary College. Every day they were at the back there. So I thought I'd go down and hang out with them and check and see what's going on. And so we got talking, and I asked them. I said, "If I start a school, would you come?" They said, "Yes, we'll come to your school, no problem." And that's well, exactly what. What was it
1: about it? You starting a school that they were like, "Yeah, we'll come." <laughs> well,
0: I took them. I took them in there, into my building, and I gave them food, and we chat, we talk about food. Co- that's probably quite and key. And I ask them why, why don't they want? To, and they tell me, they tell me their reasons, and yeah, they have, they have good enough reasons. One is that. The, the One of the, the students says, I have a, I think it was an Indian teacher that I, he doesn't understand his English and he just couldn't be bothered. And he doesn't ask questions, so he just go with the flow and what he said, he just couldn't understand. But a lot of them are, the others are just, they don't want to go to school. Hate the school, don't want to go to school. They just go to school to please their parents. and But they go into the school, signed up and disappear. So they were at the back. Of my building and and that's how i i brought them in and we talk and connect told them who i am and told them what i do and so i said seriously if i started school would you come and straight away they said we'll come and sure enough we started a, a school i talked to my friend who was a school teacher at the time <laughs> and i said can i get you to volunteer some time of your teaching so she volunteered an afternoon three afternoons a week that's wow, that's a started. lot. Yeah, so she for you know for free. So we established a school there. The school found out where these students come from, and they came and oh yeah, I got into trouble. They <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and I love it. <laughs> so
1: you do seem like a bit of a troublemaker. <laughs>
0: yeah, they said they want to know. And when they, it was when they come in, they see these students with their books reading. And I said. How did you get them to The naughty that? kids, they don't right? Do they don't do that in the, in, in the school. <laughs> <laughs> but over here, look at them. He couldn't believe. So he couldn't bother to, to come and check anymore. Because before that, he was coming with the van, pick them up and take them to Hillary College. And they just go in, show their faces. And they come and out. And disappeared. And so they eventually send, the, the education department found out, and they send a retired uh, principal from Tangaro College, Jim the name. Yeah, he came and did a feasibility study and yeah, you know, it took about six months. And then it became a the education department decided to establish a alternative education.
1: Oh geez. Well, wow. so, I can't wait. So, like, so you create yeah, you basically created, yeah, we
0: created it. it. We created it. We created the and so um when was that? The started from this is in 90, 96, 97, 98 <laughs> Yeah. And and so it became nationally. The sad thing is. It went back to the same place that failed in the first place. And so everything has gone back into the school system that had failed. In what way? Everything has gone back into the way they do things. And so they boxed it in and eventually just, I don't know where it is now, but I'm in the process of doing the same thing. Reestablish, I want to reestablish a school because there's so many kids that are not going to school. More so than back then.
1: Because what do you think about this new government is coming back in and ACT Party have a bit more sway this time and they're big into charter schools. Is that, would that fit into a charter school model or would it just be more like alternative
0: education? No, we, I mean, we create, in our community, I'm speaking for Otara, I'd like to create our own system, how we see it from our perspective and, and our community. A lot of our kids are practical, they do things in the practical sense. They learn and understand more in the workshop because that's how I used to learn. <laughs> so I'm doing something that I would have loved someone to do back in my time. I failed everything in the classroom. But if in the practical environment, I learned faster, understand more of the English and the maths and, the, and everything else in the hands-on. So I felt like at times I've, I think with my hands. I can understand and click. So you need to have more more of the on-the-job training, more practical in doing things and creating things and learning in that process. And I'm doing that now in a small group of kids that come to my place. They come to fix their bikes. They come to, so I teach them, I show them. And in the midst of that, we learn and understand the English language, the science, the maths. All that is all built in all the practical stuff that we learn. makes it fun. And then you'll hear them talking about You'll hear the kids talking about it how fun it is and it's not until you touch that you begin to, the brain begin to kick into, understand all these things I would like to, to do it differently and uh, more connect with the environment we live in, learning and understanding the climate that we live in and understand life skills and we don't do enough with that
1: I guess one of the things that I kind of wanted to touch on, really, is about fatherhood in this podcast as well. So obviously you've got your own children, your own biological children that you're very much a father of. But I guess you're also a bit of a father or a grandfather figure, as you mm. said. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. To a lot of the young people in the community through your work in the past, and I'm sure a lot of those young people are fathers themselves or mothers themselves now, and, yeah. and, and, and as they've gotten older, what are you like noticing for like young people like today? Because I guess one of the things that we're concerned about is that in modern age, a lot of children are growing up without mm. fathers yeah. or in a single parent um, household. In New Zealand, we have big problems with the justice system, especially for Maori and Pacifica people. Mm and we know from the stats is that a child who has at least one parent incarcerated has somewhere yeah. between 5 and 9 times the risk of being incarcerated themselves and i guess part of it is is it because a lot of them end up having father fatherlessness for a time because yeah. most likely it's the father that's gone to jail and obviously if the conditions surrounding whatever happened to mm. Mm-hmm. That father ending up into the jail system is probably similar living conditions for those kids as well in terms of economic and community you know,
0: issues, right mm-hmm. We see the fruit of that now with young men that are growing up without fathers, and sometimes their grandparents are there, but they're not there for those who don't have anyone or, or an uncle maybe, but majority of them that are grown up in a solo mom parents, and so they basically grow up with the role models are gangs selling drugs and so they're very disconnected the, and I see that all the time and it's something that and it's never going to slow down either continue to see more and more young men in particular growing up with just mum or not even mum I see many that are on the street that had grown up on the street at a younger age and continue on to a life of crime uh, ram raids and so nothing is done from that young age, so the cycle will continue. Again, it goes back to educating and and teaching and learning and understanding about the importance of fathers, because I don't know, I mean, how do you learn to be a father? Because a lot of these kids that I know that they're having children at young age and no responsibility, they just take off and so yeah, that's a huge problem. Fatherless the fatherless generation that sometimes some of the youth that I work with, they're already too far gone, um, but catching them at younger age and journey with them, because definitely the importance of fatherhood. Yeah, that's a big issue for me. Yeah. That's a big-
1: Can I ask you a little bit more about, I guess... Your time when you just moved to New Zealand Because I understand that In that really dark time for you You were also part of a gang yourself as well Mm -hmm. Is that right? Mm -hmm. The Mm -hmm. stormtroopers? Yeah
0: For me it was just another It's an era where I was looking for something Like I said before I have that emptiness in me That I want to find something that will fill that And so when I met up with the group of friends They were drinking They were drunk They were having everything that I was looking for I, I thought it was and so I decided, hey, that looks good. So I joined in.
1: Because I guess it's that sense of community.
0: Yeah, connect. Belonging. Yeah, belonging is a big one. Because you want to be a part of this group and you want to be somebody and acceptance and comradeship and we do a lot of things together. I get caught up in that only to discover that this does not fulfill my desire. Does not fill my emptiness. This not. In fact, it just escalates to even more darker. And so, I decided this is not for me. It was time to move on. And and I was searching, trying to find that something that I was looking for that I was missing. So. And
1: were you able to bring any of your friends from that gang out of it as well?
0: Yeah, some. I I influence. To move on into their own journey. But a lot of them have moved on. I'd like to think that my influence has taken them in the direction where they can find themselves. Because at the time they knew me before I changed. They knew me when I was an alcoholic, gangster, drinker, yeah, womanizer, you name it. They knew me then, and then they knew me now. I so said, Are you that same person then? I see so you. I've changed. I've decided that's not for me. I found something even better. They, yeah, some has influenced.
1: And how are you finding it now? Because, you know, in terms of young people who are on that trajectory to, you know, joining gangs and crime and stuff, how are you finding it in terms of trying to get those kids off that journey?
0: Well, <clears throat> that has been my life. I want to be an influence to show them that there is another way that they don't need to be in that environment to ride a Harley, that there is a way. And I live my life right in that environment where they'll see me, I'm there, and also earn enough respect to be able to speak into their lives and and show them and tell them there is a, a better way. You don't have to go through that way. I've tried that and it didn't work. I tried that and that's what it done. I also go to prison and I speak in prison, and I see, I said, I could have been there, but because I made the choice to so take like that turn, I said, and I hear them talking to say, I wish I'd listened to you.
1: When they say, I wish I'd listened to you, if you could speak to your 18, 19 year old self now, right, hmm. what would you tell yourself?
0: Yeah, many times I've said, I wish I'm 18 again, because <laughs> it's exactly what I'm going to do, what I would do. Number one on top of the list for me is to be able to get a Get educated. Education is top for me. It'll take you in the right direction. Because if and take, go down in that direction of education. Don't go down that road because you'll end up in prison. And the direction of family. Yeah, I got married. I had three beautiful kids. And the little part of it is the spiritual aspect of my life that that, that is very difficult to many people. But I chose that because it works for me. It changes my life totally. Inside out, the whole me. I'm not the same person that I used to be. An 18 year old, I'll tell them, I said, look at your hands. The path that you want to go is in your hands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, number one for me is education. And I remember talking to a group of year 10, I think, and, and I told them exactly that. I think education,
1: when done right yeah. and when accessible, exactly. is the great leveler. It's the thing that gets people the opportunities.
0: Well, that's top for me is that. What would, would you do different? Uh, I would, that's why I want to reestablish the alternative school. That's why I want to establish a, cool, a school again and, and connect with kids who don't want to go to school because that's the thing,
1: school. right? There's a huge concern at the moment for yeah. youth who are not going to school at and the there's moment. there's so many of them. I think something like it's only like a third of Maori yeah. kids yeah. are actually regularly attending school. And that's hugely yeah. concerning. Oh, so, you yes. know, what are you seeing in Ōtara at the moment?
0: Well, exactly the same That I mean, I see it all the time, every day. And so, I wonder why. Is yeah, sure enough. And you go and talk to them. Yeah, that's also, don't to go to school. Hate school. Do you think the only
1: way is to create an alternative school or is there a way that we can get kids more engaged in mainstream school?
0: If they decided not to go to school because they don't like the teacher, that's it. Is it really
1: as simple as that? They don't like the teacher and they won't go to school?
0: The bullying and the the fighting, and there's a lot of issues on top of that. A lot of kids feel insecure and they don't feel comfortable. They don't feel safe. So they just don't want to go to school. Already, when you don't want to go to school and you get into that frame of mind of, School sucks, you're lost. So you need to make some changes and look at doing something differently. I'm in a process now. I'm working with a friend in Otara. Who they, she recognized the same need, and so she's starting to do something. So I'm working with her. And so we're doing gardening at the moment. I'm a young boy. Gosh, is go just, is it,
1: you're doing so much stuff. <laughs> okay, gardening. You're doing gardening. Tell me more.
0: Well, it, it's not just gardening. Because I realized, I discovered um, the value of gardening. is so important for our mind, body, and spirit. I, I took on a, a gentleman who was on parole. And he stayed with us for about five, six months. And I got him gardening. When he left, he said, I'm going to take that with me because I never realized that gardening can speak to you. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I never realized that the gardening can do this to you. He said... Because his, his garden was right there. We were very, really nice, luscious. So he had fresh veggies all the time.
1: I really agree with that. Like I asked you to come out this entrance because our back entrance is super messy because of yeah. all my gardening. And I'm like, I spent, I reckon I spent like a, quite a bit of money on yeah. buying plants and right, like right. soil and all of this kind of stuff. And I'm like, I don't think I will have grown enough like tomatoes and chilies to cover yeah. the expenses, yeah. whatever.
0: Yeah. Well, hearing it from gen- this uh, gentleman, I said, he's never got he's not a gardener but he said that's one thing he's going to take with him he said yeah, I'm, I'm going to be doing gardening I said he never realized that God that plants can speak to you <laughs>
1: <laughs> but there's also something about growing something from really small to yeah. really big right yeah, and that's why uh, my house is also full of house yeah, plants as well I so, love growing things
0: so what I do now is I do gardening but with the kids I go into families and yeah one of my projects at the moment is I go into families in and, and do gardening with them but the condition is that the kids have got to be involved. So I supply everything and the condition is that the kids will be involved. And in that, they learn the science of growing. the learn about agriculture. It's an education project. And so I ask them about the vocabulary of gardening and vegetables and stuff. So you bring in the spelling and you bring in the English and everything is all there. And, and then they learn about the history and the how do you grow and worms and stuff. There's a whole lot to learn.
1: I think that's the thing is that we've lost a lot of this intergenerational yeah, yeah. knowledge. We don't pass it on as it's much. Like, we don't have this whole grandparent to child relationship as strongly as previous generations. Yeah. I was talking to someone the other day and they said that in Singapore, for example, apparently if you live within 500 meters of your parents, if you're an adult and you live within 500 meters of your parent mm. or adult know what age maybe it's to do with like grandparents or whatever but you get like a quite big tax rebate because they recognize that there's a social investment to be made there's if you live within 500 meters to your like your older parents then there's like health benefits for them and then presumably if you've got children then there's like health benefits like you know for the children and the grand grandparents if there's a better connection with the two of them and
0: I'm like that's crazy And and that's how things work that's something, the whole family unit, the grandparents, the importance of, and I recognize that now, the importance of having a family unit together and connecting with the, the grandparents has a lot of knowledge that pass on to the grandkids. So there's so much in it that we've lost, so broken off and forgotten. And, and it's just the, the importance of the family unit, the grandparents, their role. But yeah back to gardening um <laughs> there's something in the soil that when you get your hands dirty it feels you, you may not like it some people don't like it but at the end of the day when you when you're in you you're you breathing all that Good oxygen the, but I feel the, like you're not supposed mentally. to, like,
1: I you're not supposed to handle the soil with your bare hands. <laughs> but I just every time I try with gardening gloves, I'm like, oh, this doesn't feel it's right. Not to, it's not the same. It's not the same. Until you
0: get <laughs> There's your all hands these, like
1: duty. warning signs on the the packets of potting mix, being like, yeah. please use the garden thing and stay away when you're going to open it because you could inhale something. Yeah. And I'm like, God, this is yeah. too much red tape here. <laughs> oh,
0: exactly. That's exactly. It's just that everything is all gone into health soapbox. and
1: safety gone mad <laughs> yeah
0: so but yeah that's I have seen how gardening works for kids because they learn stuff and I want to make sure that they learn the shovel the spade the the tools that you use for gardening all they need to understand all that so that's my reason of doing gardening but also it provides veggies for family and, and every family should have a garden because the, a lot of them has a lot of space so I'm encouraging that and that's one of the things that I want to
1: what, what are the easiest v- veggies to grow in a garden from your point of view?
0: Well, the easiest, the, the one that harvests the, the, the fastest would be the bok choy. Um, the tomatoes, yeah. Um, tomatoes, lettuce, spring onions, <laughs> things that they eat. The, the, the difference in the taste. I mean, they, they said this is so good. Carrots, stuff that they can pick and eat.
1: Is there like a, what's a little pro tip for gardening that people starting off don't realize, but it's really important?
0: A lot of families straight away, ah, I don't do gardening. I, I don't like gardening. I don't like getting my hands dirty. So I focus on who's, there's got to be someone in the in the family that is open to that. So I hone in on that person. And it's always always the kids. There's always the kids that, yeah, I'll do gardening, I'll do garden. So, but the adults sometimes kind of lay backers. And because they're not used to gardening, they don't grow up with gardening. But the kids are willing to learn. So that's where I work with the kids. And then once they, the family see the veggies, the attitude will change. But that's getting over that hurdle of encouraging them to get garden. Because yeah, a lot of the adults say, nah, i just too busy for gardening. I don't have for gardening. I'm not very good at gardening. I can't grow anything, which is not the truth. <laughs> that would be my tip is I'd have to journey with him and hold him in the hand and say, let's go, we will all do it together. I don't know if that answers your question.
1: <laughs> <laughs> my dad tells me a lot of stuff about veggie gardens and I don't always listen. So I should probably try and get more intergenerational knowledge of my dad. <laughs>
0: you know, oh, well, the, the main important thing is the water to make sure that it's all water. That's access to water and that water, the plants need they plant needs water. If you don't eat, if you don't drink, what happens, you'll starve. So it's exactly the same as the plants. I said, if they don't get food, if they don't get um, water, the sun will wither them and they'll die quickly. So I said, so plants is just like you.
1: Got my friend a plant for a birthday the other day. So yeah. some would say it's a great gift. Some would say, is it just extra responsibility? And I
0: say, why not both? That's what a lot of people say. It's just extra responsibility. <laughs> yeah.
1: If you'd like this podcast and want to stay updated on the newest content, follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Revolving Door Syndrome. Send us a DM or leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. I want to talk to you a little bit more about what, what, what we'd been chatting about before recording the podcast, which was about your work with canoes. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Five years, yep. Five years ago, I, I decided to really get into a little bit more seriously because I grew up in a, an environment when I was a child, 8, nine, ten years old, with people who built canoes. And all I can hear is thump of the, the people chopping logs. And not only that, but I hear laughing and conversation. And at times I just kind of sneak around and just hang around and watch these men having fun, look like they're having fun, discussing about things and laughing about stuff and building canoes. And in the midst of all that, I hear a conversation about the weather for fishing. When the coconut leaves begin to dance in a certain way and you hear that sound, that means a good weather for fishing. There's other things that they, they discuss about this. So they look at the the clouds and, and read the clouds and say, good fishing tomorrow. <laughs> and I was listening to all the conversation. and said, so, well... It didn't really mean much to me back then. But it was years later that I began to hear those voices and understand. And so I decided to get into the canoes and start building canoe models to learn and understand a little bit more about our history and our culture. It's our DNA. And discover myself from there and and gradually build it to a point where it has now become are very much a part of me so um, that's my new journey is building canoes all the canoes of the pacific as my way of connecting with the different ethnic groups and understanding and learning about their history and their culture and including maori because there's so much i've discovered that there's so much that we can learn from our ancestors and about who we are where we are today and how to move forward So uh, Sometimes I wonder
1: about that When we were talking about that With like my own ancestry So my parents came from China And I knew my mum's parents So Mm. my my, my grandmother on my mother's side Passed away a few years ago And my grandfather's still alive But he's back in China now And I grew up with them a lot When I was younger But my dad's parents passed away Long before I was born So I never got to meet them And I think about what's been lost In terms of ancestry And intergenerational knowledge Because I think one of the greatest shames in Chinese history and I know that current Chinese people in China or whatever probably don't think about it in the same way because a lot of influence of my own father but through a lot of what has happened with the Cultural Revolution and Great Leap Forward in China is that we lost so much history and so much knowledge Mm. and my dad told me that this kind of Thing of like sort of erasing history, erasing knowledge happened yeah, like frequently yeah. in Chinese history. And I just think, oh, it's such a shame because there's so much of that intergenerational knowledge. And I'm like, who am I? I mean, I guess look, I'm, an, I'm a descendant of like Chinese people, but I don't really know like my ancestry history much beyond my grandparents, yeah, basically.
0: Yeah. And we've lost a lot for our specific people. I realize, then I can understand because when I, I left Nui, I burned my bridges pretty much. I blew up my bridge. I don't want nothing to do with that. I, I'm off chasing the bright lights and the good life of Otero of and left my culture. When I had children, I decided, no, I'm not going to teach them anything about my culture and the language. But I look back at it now with a deep regret. Absolutely regretted dearly. And that happens when I went back to Nui, my son. He went for... Oh, a visit with them, some family members. And when he came back, he brags about it. He talks about it. He was all oh, that's all he can hear. So he said to me, Dad, you should go. And I said, Well
1: had it been how long had it been since you'd been back?
0: Oh uh, 30, 30. Really? So you
1: as in mean, you came back, yeah. came to New Zealand, you'd
0: never gone back, really. Yeah, no, I like I said, I want nothing to do with. It. So I I said, Well, I can't afford you pay my FA and you. So he paid my FA and I went with him. And as soon as I land, something happened. You know, it's like that spiritual connecting where I belong came and got hold of me. So ever since then, I decided to go back every year for a month, a couple of months, and reconnect and regain back what I had lost and realized that what I was looking for was right there.
1: So I think Uh, we all underestimate our connection to our culture yeah. and our ancestry. Because that is something that I feel is probably missing for me, I guess, because I still have the language yeah. in terms of Mandarin Chinese, but I don't have a lot of connection to my culture. And I yeah. personally, I find it difficult to connect with people, Chinese people who've just come to the country. I find yeah. that really difficult. And I mean, part of it is probably... Uh, like a, an, an assimilation coping mechanism for me growing yeah. up in New Zealand having to sort of assimilate to the local culture it means yeah. at the cost of my own culture there are little things like I don't remember all the different festivals that Chinese people celebrate apart from Chinese New Year yeah. and there are a lot of foods that like I don't really eat and yet my partner will like my partner who's New Zealand European will mm. <laughs> will mm. eat and and there is a little bit like I don't know I guess, dissonance. It doesn't something that doesn't feel yeah. quite right. Yeah. And I'm lucky that I have a really good connection with my parents. So I mm. don't have real problems with that. But there's that whole feeling of not fitting in yeah. a little bit. Yeah. And I guess I want to ask you a bit, a bit more about the canoeing, the canoeing mm. carving actually yeah. that you're doing with young people.
0: Well I think um like it it happens I decided to when I went to New, York, I decided to make some and uh um and felt that I've got something. And so I kept going and develop it to a point where it is now. It's become a thing now. It's taken over pretty much. I'm hooked. <laughs> I love the art of the Pacific that sadly, in some cases, is slowly disappearing. And so I'm going back into the past to find some of them and, and reconnect again. So I'm at the, my mission now is to be able to reduplicate some of that and bring it to today, and also talk about our history and our culture individually in our ethnic group. I have a Samoan Tongan Newan background, very strong in the, in the history of the Pacific, and so I'm beginning to learn about how do they get there and the journeys that they had. This is long before. The explorers, modern explorers, came. Captain Cook and 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 when they came, they saw a whole lot of that was going on. Is so, in like
1: the mixing and the yeah
0: the document. Yeah, and there was a lot of training. There was a lot of um, traveling, from island to island, and so they they documented a lot of them and also brought a lot of the some of the canoe designs that are copied and duplicated today, and so. My interest was actually to, from the art perspective, and to see how creative they have been, and to build these huge machines that travel with no, with no tools. That was my interest, and in how do they do that? So, how do they do it? <laughs> yeah, interesting. I mean, I, are you I doing
1: it? Are you still using I, chainsaws? Or? Oh,
0: my goodness. <laughs> uh, just the, the thought of having to use tools that, that are made of, of um, stone axe, tools that are made of shells or anything, or bones or anything that is sharp and there's so much creativity in there i mean there's no way there's no <laughs> there's way, no way. <laughs> no, just the thought of I mean, how do they chop this big humongous tree down to build a, tr- uh, a canoe and uh, travel well, all from, from Hawaii to aotearoa tell me about that one no these things weren't accident they weren't the traveling of the pacific people weren't they were crisscrossing the pacific <laughs> They had GPS before yeah, GPS. No. The only GPS they have is the stars.
1: <laughs> know exactly
0: how to travel from <laughs> their place to this place. And that was told when Captain Cook's one of the men that Captain Cook brought from Hawaii to travel with him, he told Captain Cook that's the direction where they go. But they were depending and they ended up exactly in the same place where this man had he knew the knowledge so by think, reading the stars. I think
1: some people just I think some people have better What's the word Like a sense of direction Right Like I think I have A pretty good idea Of where north is At most times Because it's all in relation to like where the sun is at the time of the day, right? And there are some cultures around the world, I can't remember where it was, but I remember hearing there's some culture in the world where instead of having like left and right in their normal conversation, they talk mm. about north, south, east and west. So they, right. they don't say, oh, this is my left leg, this is my west leg, or this is my like north, north, east leg. And it's quite interesting because it's built into their language. Right. So they constantly talk about where is, which direction is what.
0: Well, I think with them... Um with these guys, they, it was their life. They they it was their everyday living. They it they make a point to understand and know the what they live and how to get around. Because it's for their for their livelihood, for fishing. Because Google
1: Maps um, just dumbs us yeah, down, yeah. eh?
0: Yeah, mean, Can't get anywhere, can't get
1: anywhere with that Google yeah, Maps. They
0: just look at the stars <laughs> and say, yeah, that's the direction where we're going. And, and um, you know, they can tell. And I guess that during that time there was no uh, global warming. There was no issue with the weather pattern. They get to read and understand exactly how things were. There was enough um, fish in the sea.
1: Yeah,
0: they, <laughs> exactly. And they know exactly where, where they get along and they get around uh, amazingly. There's so many um, stories that had been told of um, the Great Migration. And, and it's just incredible. This is long before the, the white man came. So, so I have embarked on that journey and I want to take students that I work with to be able to see and learn and understand from our ancestors where they come from and the creativity, the engineering, the mechanics, the science, the, everything. The GPS, they have GPS <laughs> long before we have uh, GPS is the stars and, and they be able to learn and read. You see, I understand that because when I, when I was growing up, I listened to those conversations. When we go fishing, I have no idea. How do you know the tide is good? We went there. Yeah, perfect. And that's because they read the environment. They read the birds and the clouds in the, and the moon. So, yeah. So every time we go fishing, it's bang on. It's a sea's calm. It's just catch a lot of fish and that's because they were connected. They understand. They knew exactly
1: that symbiotic relationship with yeah. the environment. They connect
0: with the environment. And they have to because it's their well their livelihood, their well-being, their life. So and they need to learn and understand that in our generation, we don't have that at all. We don't have any any zero. We're just being led into that's the direction we're going and we're all going that way. So my, my journey with the canoes is to learn about our history and our culture and our DNA. That is our history. That is our DNA. And a lot of the families that I have worked with, and particularly now, they have no idea what their canoe look like until they see our product. The kids that I worked with last, the last two, three, three four weeks, they took their canoes into their parents and click. They connect and say, "Oh, well, that's what my grandfather used to make. So the conversation begins to talk about the, our history and our, and where we come from. So that's what the canoes are doing at the moment. That's what it's I'm doing. generating really, conversation. Yeah. It's a creating conversation to learn about our history.
1: you reckon you'll progress to making like a real lifestyle canoe? That's the plan. The plan is? Take it for a float.
0: Yeah. Take oh, it for exactly. a paddle. Exactly. And create something that can be seen and used that's the whole idea of it and I want to use that as a rehabilitation for some of the kids that have been locked up and and so that's my next project next year I'm a project put met. In prison so I'm I've got that and the plan to work with a group of men in uh, weary prison
1: because what are you noticing with the kids that you are engaging
0: well first I had to break down those walls a lot of the kids have got walls around them that it's unless those walls are broken down you won't be able to communicate you won't be able to get through. And so I had to figure out how to break those walls down, so we can be able to build those bridges. And because
1: some people might look at it and be like, "Oh, it's just some old fart coming along yeah, to like you exactly. know do some like woodwork with kids." You know, what what is the value yeah. <laughs> in this program, right? Yeah. What what is the hidden value that people might not see? Yeah,
0: well, that's the challenge that I face. <laughs>
1: <laughs> like pitch this idea and it's all welling it but on paper it's like it's just some old guy <laughs> who yeah. wants to build but, boats
0: but the, right but
1: I guess well I'm seeing it and I'm picturing it obviously I'm not there but I guess it's more than just yeah. woodwork right it's something practical but it's about how to connect with people in a way that so you know, how do they in terms of connecting with their culture
0: yeah I think one of the the advantages that I have is because of the fact that I have lived and walked the talk and has journeyed with this for a long time. So they've seen me. Now I'm working with the generation of grandkids of those that i would worked with. So I have a long standing in community so they know who I am. And um, and this year in particular, more so it's the doors are wide open in front of me. And so uh, everywhere I go, they want a piece of me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you sound like a very busy man. So where do you get all of the funding for all the different programs that you're running? The
0: way I work? I do it first. In the past, we did, went to ask for some funds, but they look at me and said, well, we're. So the response hasn't been that good. So what I did was I've always done something first. And then I bring the funders in and I say, look, see what I've done? And straight away, that's because they see in front of them, they see what I do. And so they want to put money into something that is working. Because
1: I guess that's hard, is that you. I think a lot of people are held back by, oh, if we don't have funding, how do we do it? But I guess you kind of, you're kind of doing, what you're kind of doing is saying, oh, it's better to beg for forgiveness than to ask for permission, right?
0: Uh, Yeah, I've always, when I first initially started, it was, funds was difficult. But once I got established, that's because I'm a practical person. I see They see things, they see what I do. They see what their money's gone into. And I'm ready to get some funds for my tools, to get my tools in because I've got about 50 plus canoes already. And I've got enough to fill this room up. (laughs) So when they come and see that straight away, and not only it's the canoes, but what it does and the program that goes with the canoes, it's huge.
1: What is the biggest lesson you've learned?
0: My heart, my desire, my vision, and the passion and the love to keep that fire Alive and keep that fire going.
1: I don't know (laughs) if that fire is ever going to die, to be honest.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So while that fire is still going, I'm going. And that's what keeps you going, is that passion, that love, love to connect because other people, other lives depends on it. So
1: we've talked a lot about fatherlessness and mentorship and how you're kind of, I guess, a surrogate father for a lot of young people in the community Mm. who are fatherless. You know, there's a lot of talk out there at the moment about toxic masculinity, right? In terms of men being macho and needing to show their strength and push women down as a way of toxic masculinity. We talk a lot about what toxic masculinity is, I guess, in pop culture, but what we don't talk about enough, I guess, is what is, good masculinity? We talk about fatherlessness. How can we encourage people to be, hmm. take masculinity in a, in a positive direction and be good male, male role models?
0: I know is from what I see is that we have lost that masculinity. We've lost that ability to be men. Through changes of the environment and scenery and culture, we seem to have lost the ability to understand and know what it's like to be a man i work with families and children who don't have fathers but they're they're raised by uncles who are gang-patched drug dealings and they've never known what it's like to be a father and i think that's one of our failures in fact that recognizing that and be able to do something to alleviate some of that issues of teaching our young men how to be young men and how to be fathers, how to be a man.
1: Presumably, some of the men that you talk to in prison, some of them are fathers. Yeah. How do you find that sort of connection with them? Like, how easy is it to talk to them about
0: fatherhood? They've got so much stories to tell of their upbringing. The same as me and the reason why they're there. And some, they have recognised the fact that they're there because of the issues that they faced when they were growing up. And that is really what, comes down to and the lack of that male role model of a father. <clears throat> I grew up in an alcoholic background where my mother gets beaten up pretty much every payday. And so I learned from there, that's how you treat women. And so I didn't do that. I didn't, thank God, I didn't end up in that situation. But I do know that when you grow up in an environment, which I've seen with many, is that's exactly what you will end up doing. That's a very sad one for me because I do work with young men who don't have dads and they don't know how to be a man. They don't know how. So I had to be that person to show them that this is how, this is what a man does. Responsibility, teaching them about responsibility as a man. I live my life so that they can see in me something that they can learn. And also when I have the opportunity, when they give me the opportunity, I can speak to them, speak to them about what's to be a father, what's to be a man, and also to give them as much tools that they need that they can learn and maintain that relationship.
1: It brings me to another question, which is around the benefits of what you're doing with the canoes, right? Because yeah. when you look at it, creating something, I think they say that the same part of the brain that is involved in creating yeah. is also what's involved in destroying okay. things, yeah. right? It's okay. like the same part of the brain, yeah. And that's why I wonder how if there's that—that that, that's where the value is in a program like a canoe building, because you're taking that destructive energy. Yeah. And I think we talked about this a little bit before. Well, I guess podcast, it's a creative.
0: It's a creative way to – it takes a lot of thinking it's to – It's an outlet. Yeah. T- it takes a lot of thinking and creativity how, in, a, in a negative way, how to do ram raids. And, so you got – there's a lot of creative, creative thinking, how to go about in, in achieving that. I guess like what you said is the, the same part of the brain and used to create, to be creative, because there's a lot of creativity that have been used wrongly.
1: So I think what people don't understand, or I don't know, people really loosely understand is that there's that saying that the devil makes work of idle hands. Exactly. Exactly. And I think programs like this, like it's more than just some old guy doing yeah, work with kids. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's reducing youth crime, it's yeah. increasing education, it's increasing cultural connections. Yeah. I'd, I'd bet money that programs like this would increase educational yeah. economic <laughs> opportunities for young people because they're simply more engaged in doing something that's productive.
0: And that is my, my motto, is keep them busy. Keep them occupied doing fun things. They won't have time to think about it. I, the reason why I support my daughter and my son into the hip-hop dance is because, well, I didn't see it at first. I was very dead against dance, and dance to me was from my old school. and said, what? That's what? And I said those not very nice words to my son, Billy, because Billy came to me and said, Dad, I'm going to do dance. I paid for him to do music. And then he came to me and said he's going to do dance. Oh, I hit the roof. I said some words that weren't very nice back then, in the, but I decided to follow it from a distance. And what I saw, I was shocked. I thought, God, I've never seen so many young people and girls and guys, and they were passionate. And I saw something different. I saw my perspective on the dance was what I see in the movies and yeah, it wasn't positive. But what I saw with the hip hop, I said, well, so I decided to to support Billy. Sold my motorcycle and paid for the mirrors and the equipment that he needs to do the mixing, and that's how hip hop started in New Zealand.
1: Wait, so you started the alternative education and you started hip hop in New Zealand? (laughs) And
0: so he put together, um, pulled some friends together, and then I started dancing, and I got more and more dragged into it, and I was hooked. I saw something that I've never seen before.
1: Because that's how we've connected, me and you, is because yeah. I used to dance with your daughter. Yeah. And, and I think that's a really interesting thing with dance because oh, we talk about this creative versus destructive sort of yeah. as an outlet, right? Because I think one of the main styles of dance that your daughter does is crump, yeah. right? And yeah. um, I met her and her partner, and they're both like big in the crump scene. Yeah. And to like an outside person, like crump looks quite it's violent, right? Dance. It's a bit crazy because <laughs> it's, it's a, like yeah. a dance Right, <laughs> that, That's what it is, but it's this like really great environment and there's so much energy in it and yeah. you see these young people and they're just throwing themselves on the dance floor and it's completely a creative outlet and there's no violence yeah. because it's just dance and it's crazy the amount of benefits there are and yeah. having engagement with youth and in the a, dance space.
0: To me, it's a bait that'll reach a certain type of fish. Not all the fish that goes for that bait. But there are fish who just love that beat.
1: And I think one of the if you started like Hip Hop in New Zealand, oh, amazing because we created some of the best yeah. dance crews oh, around absolutely. the world I mean, in I've South seen, Auckland.
0: Yeah, and the history of Street Dance New Zealand that we started <laughs> and it became Hip Hop International. Connect up with the world. I went the first time we were Did Hip
1: Hop International start from New Zealand? No, no, no. No, 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 no.
0: no. we connect up with right, Hip Hop right, right. International in the US when they were just beginning. At that point, I think they were only been going for two, three years, small, very small. So we rocked up in two thousand and five. Billy and five, eight, eight of his crew members. Was that Desire? Yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> Desire. I wasn't. I, I didn't want to dance to me, but what I saw, it was attracting men and boys and girls, and it's vibrant. It's it, it, it caught me, caught my attention, and I thought. I want to support that. That's why I support my son. And Billy and Enola established Street Dance New Zealand that take the hip hop to a next level to the world and then the rest is history. So, yeah, it started at the back of our house.
1: (laughs) Of course it did.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, A lot of people don't know that. I spent a lot of money to help them with their first trip to the US because you of the created the New Zealand hip hop scene. <laughs> yeah, so we went to um, the first US competition in LA. We have no idea. We were fresh. We, we to go into an environment where we have no idea where we what was happening. So I went there first and to familiarize with it. And I hired a vehicle, and so I put money into uh, a lot of my personal money to. Because there was no funds then. We were just fundraising ourselves. The, and we went there and caught the attention of the hip-hop people, of the, the Americans. They said to me, where the hell did you guys come from? We've <laughs> never seen that before. <laughs> that was his words, the guy, the, the director, <laughs> Howard <laughs> Swartz. Yeah, he said to me, we've never seen that style before. This is," And I said, no, you haven't seen that yet. We haven't seen anything yet. We'll be back. And so we went back the next year, and that's when Desire went up to came second in in the competition, and then in the world, yeah, in the world. And from there, pretty much the hip hop New Zealand skyrocketed. And um, yeah, yeah, right I remember that. Country. That's
1: probably around the time when I was like, oh yeah, yeah I want to start doing right. hip hop because uh, <laughs> it
0: was big back then. And not only that, but we influenced the Australia as well. So um, Billy and Knowles's friends. They're running the Australian comp. So we influence a lot of people from way back then to where they are now, including Paris Goebel. And she has some private lessons with Billy. And so they, yeah, we built. So that's one of the things that we did. Because
1: that's the thing, right? Is that you start off by connecting with young people. Yeah. Again, it could turn us into it's. It, it's kind of like almost social enterprise in that yeah. model of getting young people upskilled and get them to upskill other young people, and then yeah. you create business value. Well, that's quite a big.
0: Well, when you look at if you look at the hip hop um, now in New Zealand and see where some of the people that that connect with um, Desire Group back in the in the days, and um, that that group of um, uh, hip hop. A lot of them has gone around the world and has done great. One uh, is in Germany. He invited um, Knowles and Ken over to Germany, paid for, because he's done well and he's gone to Germany instead because he's got German background, Some on German. So he ended up in Germany. He found some funds to, to pay and he's done well. So, yeah, and it's the same with other places. Um, oh,
1: this is why I'm like, oh, when people write off things like the arts, right, there's so much value in it. Because my parents are the same. They're like, oh. Oh. and I was like, oh, I want to be a dancer. And my parents are like, no.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, again, it's that old school thinking. And my my argument to my son was, that, uh, is, is that going to put food on your table? Exactly. That's what my parents said. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know, to me, what? Dance? You gonna make money out of dance? Well, anyway, my son he just finished um, teaching in school in in Canberra. They pay him one hundred fifty dollars an hour to to teach dance in the school, and he have been there for five years. He just quit this year before he came home, and so this yeah, you make money out. Or- There's money to be made. There's <laughs> money to be made. So yeah, so I'm 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 not as closed up, so I'm a bit more open to. <laughs> yeah. anything that works anything that reach youth that's my goal is that whatever use whatever bait that'll work to get <laughs>
1: whatever youth
0: i use even if I don't <laughs> like the bait <laughs> 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 yeah but that's what caught my attention is the fact that wow there's so many young people turning up to the first concert that I went in Hamilton I was man I was amazed at, at the amount of youth that was there and because I'm an youth, I said boy I miss this one
1: Will we see you on the dance floor, Sully? Uh,
0: I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> Say no. <laughs> all
1: yeah. right, so we have enough time for one last question. What is the best book you've ever read?
0: I'm not a good reader. I've read books and I've read books and stories of great men and women. I am in a book called Salt of Youth. And it's only me and Michael Jones in New Zealand, but it's written of all the people around the world that that has made changes in their communities. And I read that book and it was really very challenging and touching of what other people has done around the world. Like the
1: power of community organizations and community icons such as yourself.
0: Yeah. I like books uh, of people's personal stories from rags to riches, kind of, kind of similar to mine. So talk about that. I am my, my kids, my family are trying to get me to write a book, so I've started a little bit and put my book together and tell my story in a book. Oh, I look but, forward to um, reading it. Yeah. But uh, the book that I read the most, that I like the most, is my Bible. It's a manual of life that I get my inspiration from. So that's the only book that I can read almost every day. Do you have a favourite
1: like lesson, I guess, from yeah. the Bible?
0: I'm not alone. He's always on my side. He's always with me. That's why my fire keeps going. If I'm alone, my fire's already dead a long time ago. But because of that, he's with me all the time. That keeps my fire burning 24-7. <laughs> so, yeah, that's what I like the most, the fact that no matter where I am, no matter what difficult situation I'm in, knowing that someone is there with me. And I have been through many situations where I have no idea how to get out of But... Knowing that is there all the time. And I think that's the reason why I've lasted this long and, and still continuing. So I have no intention of slowing down and stop.
1: Yeah, what's retirement?
0: <laughs> yeah. I'm just, I said, I'm 72 this year and I'm only just beginning. Oh,
1: wow. You do not look so, 72. Your skin's so amazing. Life is just beginning. Well, thank yeah. you so much for coming on this podcast. You're welcome.
0: You're welcome. <laughs>
1: Revolving Door Syndrome acknowledges Māori as Tangata Whenua and to Tiriti o Waitangi Partners in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We recognise the inequities and challenges faced by Indigenous and vulnerable groups and acknowledge our duty to work towards closing the gap.